This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. The words to that song, powerful. It's one of my favorite songs that we do. It's also a, a, a bit difficult sometimes to wrap my head around the totality of those words. Because if we're honest, the first part of that, uh, of that lyric, the first part of that is one that we all would agree with. The stars were made to worship. The second part of that, so will I, it's very conditional. If we're honest, those are not true of our hearts all the time. If we're honest, this, this, when we profess, I will worship and I will hold on and I will follow, those vows that are made, they're often not kept. And so in many ways, singing that song is an aspirational endeavor. It's not truly reflective of what's always true in our hearts. Happy New Year. We are moving into a new series as we move into a new year. And that very truth that we just walked through is something that we're going to walk through for the next several months as we walk through a part of the Bible known as the Minor Prophets. It's really easy to skip over these books because we could assume that the more important parts of the Bible are these other areas, <clears throat> these other areas of the, the early parts of the Bible, the New Testament. And so we can overlook some of these other areas. So just uh, by way of, of understanding the way the Bible is created, the Hebrew Bible is really broken up into three sections. You have the law, which most folks would look at as the first five books of the Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, they refer to that as the Pentateuch or the Torah. Then you have the writings. This is a mixed group of 12 writings. You could look at it as maybe 13 if you count Chronicles separately. This, this, uh, this part of the Bible includes Daniel. Even though we look at Daniel as a prophet, the writings often include Daniel as a part of that uh, as well. And then the third section, the section called the prophets. Now in the Hebrew Bible, they separate the prophets into what they call the former prophets and the latter prophets. These are these historical books of the Old Testament, right? These latter prophets are Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings gets included there. Uh, talking about the, the works of Elijah and Elisha and telling God's people uh, what he is doing. Those are those, uh, sorry, former prophets. Then you've, get, you've got the latter prophets. The latter prophets are separated into major and minor prophets. The only reason why they call, they separate them or differentiate them with major and minor isn't based on who's more important and who's less important. It simply just means who had more to say. So the minor prophets are called minor because they're just shorter in length, but have the exact same importance and magnitude, importance in what God is saying to us, important in terms of how God sees us, what he calls us into and how he loves us. So we're going to be in that section. We're going to be in the section of the minor prophets and the minor prophets. There's one recurring thread throughout the minor prophets. And that is what we began with. 
that although our mouths our mouths say that we will worship God, that we will love him, we may even aspire to be that. So often we do not. And what happens when we turn away, when we turn our eyes away, when we turn our hearts away from the God who loved us and the God who pursued us? Who is God then? This is where we're going to look when we go through the minor prophets. We're going to look at what God calls us into. He's going, we're going to look at how God feels when we turn away from him. We're going to look at what God calls us to uh, after we have turned away, how he calls us back into uh, repentance and how he uh, reconciles us to himself. Today, we're going to begin in the book of Hosea. And in this book, we're going to look at uh, the first five chapters. We won't read through every single one, but we're going to look at some big ticket items that says a lot about who God is, who we are, and what God does to bridge the gap. So when we look at Hosea, one thing we have to know is that Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah and Amos. So these are uh, Isaiah for sure we know uh, as a prophet that we've read and we see lots of passages that get quoted from there. You might not be as familiar with Amos. These prophets are often referred to as eighth century prophets. They all take place roughly 200 years after Israel as a nation has been separated into two kingdoms. They're separated into the northern kingdom. Those were 10 tribes of Israel. And then they were separated into the southern kingdom, which just included two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. That southern tribe often was referred to as the kingdom of Judah. And the northern tribe was often referred to as the kingdom of Israel. Where is Hosea here? Hosea is in the northern kingdom. These 10 tribes that have been separated for a number of reasons. They've been separated. And uh, this really happens over a period of about 50 years. Most folks would say anywhere between 780 B.C. to 730 B.C. So this is Hosea's ministry. He's ministering in a time where the kingdom is divided. He's also ministering in a time where the kingdom itself, though, is having incredible prosperity. And at the same time, Isaiah and Amos are also prophesying and speaking to the people uh, in their respective uh, uh, areas within the kingdom. And uh, one of the most corrupt times as well was happening under the king, Jeroboam. So you've got great prosperity and you've got great corruption. Israel was in this northern kingdom. Israel was materially prosperous. Prosperity had led to social, moral, and spiritual decay. Now, we're not saying that prosperity necessarily leads to that. But in this case, prosperity outside of God's heart, outside of pursuing God's heart, led to social, moral, and spiritual decay. This was a, for, for, the, for the nation of Israel, this was a, a national decline in morale, a national decline in leadership, and a national decline in morality itself, a national decline in justice. You had the oppression of one section of the population by the other. And if we're honest, when we look at the historical background, we look at the historical context here, you got to admit that there is a stark parallel between what was happening there almost 3,000 years ago and what happens now in the 21st century in this new decade that we just began. At that time, society and God's people were on their last legs. 
The standards had gone by the wayside. People had bypassed those standards. National leaders weren't facing the real issues any longer. Uh, uh, The nation moved from one crisis to another, never learning the lessons of the past. Very similar to where we find ourselves even now. These minor prophets, these minor prophets are, are simply God expressing his problems with his people. It was not popular to be a prophet, especially for many of these that we're going to go through, because many times, and I don't know about you, I grew up in a tradition where it was, it was popular to, to, to uh, bestow this kind of title of prophet onto certain people, because I believe sometimes we mischaracterize or misidentify what prophecy means and even what the gift of prophecy is. But these prophets were folks that were boldly speaking the word of God when it was unpopular, and much of their message was very unpopular. It's why you see even in the New Testament, a prophet's not even welcome in their own home. Why? Because oftentimes, prophets are bringing bad news. Nowadays, when people are saying, I want to hear from a prophet because they're waiting to hear good news. But here, they're bringing bad news. Not bad news in that, hey, that thing you wanted, you're not getting. But bad news in that, hey, God is reflecting or God is allowing you to reflect on all the ways you're not following him now. Is that the kind of news you want to hear? Most people don't. This is where, this is who Hosea was. Much like uh, any of these prophets, they were expressing uh, God's problems with God's people. Why? Because God's priority is always to get his people right. God's priority is to get his people right. So, so, this, so ultimately, he uses his prophets to diagnose his people's problems. And here, the diagnosis of Israel's problem shows up in Hosea. And what is their problem? Their problem isn't ultimately an economic problem. Their problem is ultimately not a political problem. Their problem is a spiritual problem. Their problem is a spiritual problem. Why? Because the hearts of God's people had departed from God. Now, this doesn't mean that they had visibly departed from God necessarily. This doesn't mean that you could look at them and, and demonstratively you could see, oh, they've walked away from God. No. How do we know that? Because, again, the contemporary of Hosea, Isaiah, actually uses words. He, he, his prophecy describes just how the people of God, the, the Israelites, the children of Israel, how they continue to worship him. They continue to gather in large numbers to sing praises and recite scripture and exalt him. They kept meeting. They kept worshiping. They kept having church, if you will. They kept offering sacrifices to him. But they were doing what Jesus described in the New Testament when he said, these people worship me with their mouth, with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is where they were. So, so don't get it twisted. This isn't like people who are just completely uh, violating whatever rituals and whatever uh, habits they had gotten into in worship. They kept all those same routines, but their hearts were far away from them. This is where we find ourselves here in Hosea. What you're going to see here is Hosea is showing us he's, he's identifying and he's diagnosing the, the hearts of, of, of the children of Israel. And he's showing that their hearts had cooled on God. Their hearts had cooled off on their initial love of God, a drifting, a spiritual adultery, if you will. 
And that's where we're going to find. Most times, if you've gone through church for any period of time and we get to stories of Hosea, the language here, we were talking about this earlier, the language here can be very exclusively gendered. So your mind only goes to think through this woman who's this profligate, kind of sexually profligate woman. That is not the point of this text at all. In many ways, in every way, what God is saying is men and women combined, you are the harlot in this story. It doesn't. This is not about finding ways to heap judgment and shame on a particular gender or what women learn your lesson. Don't do this. That has nothing to do with this. This has everything to do with the picture that God is using is my people who I love. They are my bride, my people who I have chosen, my people who I have redeemed, my people who I have called. They are my bride. And in this picture, this story of Hosea. God is actually showing this is how I'm diagnosing your problem, and this is going to be the answer to rectify the problem. So I'm just going to read one real quick portion of chapter one, because this sets the table for us, for us to really start to see how this allegory plays out, right? Hosea 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah and of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. And I I hate to say this, but it just feels like it's so obvious that this really is talking about the children of Israel and people as a whole and not just women, but sadly. And I would argue maybe because more often than not, the people who are interpreting this are men. So we typically will just overly highlight the impact on women and not think about the big picture. The big picture is we all right. The children of Israel, all of them, men, women, children alike, they are represented by the woman in this story. This isn't uh, about just shaming the woman, right? But God, but again, given the context that they're in, right, the, the, the different, the, the differentials in power, the relational dynamics that are at play between men and women, God uses a picture that they would have understood. What they would understand is it's men who often go and choose women to marry. It's not like today, right? It's men who go and choose women to marry. They provide the protection. They provide the covering because that was the culture at the time. So God uses a picture that he knows they're going to understand. Now, there's something else to, to, to get here in Hosea that is really, it can be disconcerting in, in a lot of ways because God could have just said this to Hosea. God could have just said, hey, tell the people that they're acting like a wayward wife. Tell the people that they are acting like someone who is running around, leaving their first love, leaving their husband and being with other men. Tell, just tell them that. They can wrap their head around that. Tell them that. We know that there are times when that's said in other parts of scripture. But sometimes, especially with relationships, words aren't enough. Sometimes there are things that you can feel. Love is that way. How many times do we say things like, my love goes beyond words, right? It can sound almost kind of cliche too, because people are, sometimes it just means I'm too lazy. I don't want to think about any more words. But a lot of times there are emotions that can be so difficult to convey with words alone. And so what God does here with Hosea that I think is so different from other prophets, he says, I'm not just going to give you my words for the people. I'm going to give you my pain for the people. 
I'm going to allow you to experience just how broken my heart is that my loved ones, that my bride has run away from me. Hosea, I'm calling you to be broken so that you can express my broken heart to my people. I don't know about you, but the times when I've said, Lord, I just want to be used by you, this is never what I mean. I'd love to say that I would love to just be, God, use me so that I can willingly go into a situation that I know is going to be heartbreaking in order to now be used and let my life be an object lesson. But Hosea is the object lesson. There's really nothing personally for him that is a win for him here. And yet God says, my heart is so broken over my people that words aren't going to do it alone. Hosea, you're not going to be able to convey to them what I need you to convey to them unless your heart is broken like my heart is broken. And so, you know, we say this, we quote this, we'll sing these words, break my heart for what breaks yours. Hosea is a living embodiment of that. His heart is broken the way God's heart is. Is broken. So what does God tell him to do? He says, go and marry a woman of promiscuity. So we, we don't know whether or not the woman, uh, if that Gomer was actually a prostitute at this point in time. She may have been promiscuous, but may not have been a prostitute yet. We don't know. Lots of theories on that. Doesn't matter. At the time that they got married, we know that begins to happen. Another thing he tells Hosea to do, be with this woman that you know has, this is her lifestyle. This is what she does. Marry her, pursue her, and have children with her. So, so make life with this woman who is going to violate your trust, who is going to break your heart, who is going to embarrass you, who is going to bring shame to your name when you're in the courts and the city gates of the, of the areas in, in the Northern Kingdom. Be with this person who's going to sully your name and reputation. Be with her and have children with her. And he did that. Verse four, so he went, uh, verse three, so he went and married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel. This is really important because if you look at the, the names of the children that God uh, assigns, they all are very specific and they're intentional. And they're really supposed to be a message to the people of Israel, to the northern kingdom. Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will bring the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. This is a call back to, I believe, 2 Kings 10, where you see this massive battle for this uh, sinful man, Jehu, who has caused incredible problems within the kingdom and God brings judgment on him. So, so ultimately what God is saying is, marry this woman that is going to break your heart. Marry this woman that is going to defy you, that is going to run around on you, that is going to be adulterous. Marry her have children with her. Once you have children, you are tied to her. It's one thing for somebody to break your heart and you don't have kids with them and then they're gone. You're like, my heart's broken, but it's, at least I don't have to be reminded because I have children with them. He's going to have children and he does. And then God says, when you have those children, name the first one judgment so that that is a constant reminder of what's coming. Name them judgment. She conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Loruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. So name the first one judgment, name the second one no mercy. Then the third, when he goes in, well, he finishes, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah and I will deliver them by the Lord their God. I will not deliver them by bow, sword or war or by horses and cavalry. 
Again, Gomer had weaned Lo Ruhama. She conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said, name him, Lo am I, for you are not my people. So what do we see here? God is like, Hosea, I want you to experience the pain that I have. So I want you to join yourself to someone who is going to betray you, who is going to betray you multiple times, who's going to embarrass you, who is going to defy you. And then I want you to make life with them, joining you to them by having children with them. And then I want you to name the children three things that represent what we would say makes a person unlovable. I want you to name them judgment. Judgment is coming. Harsh judgment is coming. I want you to name them no mercy. No mercy will be shown to you. And then I want you to name them this, this idea, low am I, which is so powerful because ultimately when you see what God says about that, he says, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. So you're judged by me. You get no mercy from me and you are not mine. What God is really showing us here, because remember, Hosea had to go and marry this woman and have children with this woman and then name these kids these things that seem counterintuitive. Why? You realize that judgment, no mercy and, and not claiming the person, that's a lack of love. That's basically saying what you have done and the way that you are, who you are on the inside is unlovable. And God is saying, I'm so heartbroken, but I need my people to know that I am the God that pursues the unlovable. I am the God who pursues what society would call unlovable. It's not that God is saying this, but he's looking and saying, if you really think through this, in, any, in, in, in conventional wisdom would say, I would never marry someone like that. If, if, Jose, if Jose had his dudes around, yo, I'm, I'm dating this woman, I'm thinking about marrying this woman, every one of them would say, well, you know what she is about, right? Same thing, if there was a woman who's getting ready to marry a man and her girlfriends are like, you do know that he's out there with X, Y, and Z all the time. You do know that he's likely going to end up breaking your heart because that doesn't seem like anything that's going to change. All those things make sense. Most people would say, don't be with that person. Most people would say it's foolish for you to pursue them. Most people would say you had one kid with them knowing that they were that way. You had two kids with them knowing that would be that way. You had three kids with them. You are now bringing this on yourself. You're choosing to bring. All of that makes sense. People would look at that and go, listen, you, you're getting what you signed up for. You married somebody that was not worth the kind of love you're going to pour into them because there's no way you're going to get a return on that investment. So humanly speaking, this was a woman. If this was a man, it'd be the same thing. This is the person who would seemingly be unlovable. And God is making the point. I love the seemingly unlovable. I pursue the seemingly unlovable. So he pursues. And he, he's, after saying this, you're going to be reminded. And then, then after all of these things that Hosea does, Hosea's life is now meant to be this picture to do what we said at the very beginning, to then diagnose the people of God. Now that Hosea has experienced and feels the real brokenness of his own relationship, he is now equipped to deliver the message of God to his people. He is now equipped to, to, to emotionally engage what it is that God really feels. So in chapter two, you see that all of a sudden Israel's adultery begins to be rebuked, begins to be called out. 
And you start seeing what he says here. Look at what he says. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. There's that language, right? You have done these things. You are, there's no way that I can love. And when I mean love, not just emotionally love, but volitionally, right? Love being a verb, love being an action. You are not lovable means you are not worth me putting in the time to pour into you because you will refuse to pour it back into me. And so here he's like, uh, uh, she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a, a desert and like a parched land and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. Yes, their mother is promiscuous. She conceived them and acted shamefully for she thought I will follow my lovers, the men who gave me food and water, my wool and my flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. A lot here. Because now what we're starting to see is not only is God showing the people just how much like Gomer they are, because that's really where he's going to go. He's going to really show them this is bigger than just Hosea's story. This is bigger than just gossip for the town. I can't, or this is bigger than, man, I can't believe Hosea and Gomer are doing that. Did you hear what Gomer did? This is so much bigger than that. This is God saying, all of you men and women, you are her. And God is saying, and I am Hosea in this story. And he's showing them that much like, uh, much like Gomer, the people, us, we often will cool off on God after he has pursued us, ransomed us, made us his. Then we begin to drift. Spiritual drift is a real thing, just like relational drift is a real thing. When two people are together and all of a sudden, you know, they're pursuing each other and then eventually one stops pursuing. And there are any number of reasons why. But here's the scary thing. When they stop pursuing, they can easily begin and likely start to pursue something else that fulfills instead. Sometimes it's a someone. Sometimes it's a something. Sometimes it's both. So the drifting starts to happen. This is how decline is supposed to be understood. It begins in the hearts of God's people. A cooling off process. This detachment of our spirit from God. And then the detachment of God's and his people until a point comes when God and his people who have been betrothed to him are in the deepest sense strangers. Now, you see people in relationships and it's like, I don't even know you anymore. We don't. You, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes in relationships, I've seen this happen where people are the things that you have done. Unlike Hosea, the things that you have done, I didn't see coming. I thought I knew who you were and you did some things that make me realize you're not the person I thought I married. The way that you've betrayed me means I can't believe I chose to marry someone that, that could do something like this to me. See, a lot of that's where that might go. Hosea knew on the front end. But here, this is a, a case where the drift starts to happen. People start to drift away from God and God is going, you're drifting. And in your drifting, you're looking for other things to fulfill what I was already doing for you. That's, that's what drift looks like. Now, what does that look like for us? Well, it means that we do what God's people here did. We will take up a multitude of other causes, sometimes causes that are really good. 
We can take up a multitude, a multitude of other causes of all kinds and then pursue our energies there. The same vigor, the same energy, the same commitment that we would have given to following and loving God well, loving our spouse well, we will put into other things. Sometimes really, really good things. These folks were doing that. You would have people that are great politicians. How many times do people say, like, it feels like this person is married to their work more than their spouse, their family, right? Great economists, great justice warriors, great uh, uh, gardeners. There are any number, sometimes our hobbies become something that we almost give worship-like devotion to instead of God. And that's when the relationship starts to cool. Much like our personal relationships, that's how our relationship with God starts to cool. See, what Hosea is showing us here, this crucial truth, there is nothing more important than your relationship with God. There's not a thing, not a person that's more important than your relationship with God. This is the message of Hosea. We see it in Isaiah 54. Your maker is your husband, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus himself refers to uh, himself as the bridegroom of his church. He talks about drawing to himself those that he will bind to himself. This is how the consummation of all things is described in Revelation in a marriage celebration where the great cry of heaven is, I am his and he is mine. This is a personal, vitally important relationship. So what do we do? with that relationship. The same thing that Gomer did in this relationship and the same thing that the children of Israel, that the Northern Kingdom, that God's people were doing. We so readily replace all of this relationship, we replace with thousands of different substitutes, just like Israel did 3000 years ago. There is no substitute for a relationship with God, even the good stuff. Those things aren't substitutes. Sometimes we hide because at least we're not doing, we're not doing uh, incendiary things in our private time. At least we're not doing reprehensible things elsewhere. Many times we're doing things that are of good repute. We're doing things that people would go, bravo, good job. That's a really good endeavor. That's a worthwhile endeavor. And so as long as I'm doing something well, I'm doing my job well, I'm handling the house well, I'm handling, sometimes even our families can start to detract and detach us away from God. It's really easy to be like, I know that I need to be pursuing God better, but you know what? Hey, I'm spending way more time with my family and God gets it. Even that, we got to be careful with that. Because in the long run, that actually ends up being uh, a, 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 something that's harmful even to our family, right? That can be a detriment to the very people we're saying we love because ultimately what they need most is our holiness and our relationship with God. The really famous old uh, pastor that would say, people would say, what do your people need most? And he re responded, my people most need my holiness. That's, that's what people need. People, my, my, the people who I love, they need my relationship with God to be vitally strong. My relationship with God, the, 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 the relationship, the loving relationship with God needs to be strong because then that emanates and flows out into my relationships with others. So they're not separate, but, one is, but both are vitally important. And so this is what we do. Amos 
Again, the contemporary, if you read Amos, Amos is looked at as this wild, kind of strong, lion-like condemnation of God's people. Because Amos was the prophet of the broken law. These people had broken God's love. They had shattered his standards. So when you read Amos, Amos is constantly pointing out all the ways that they broke God's law. But Hosea is the prophet of the broken heart. Hosea learned that sin doesn't just break God's laws. Sin breaks God's heart. When we run elsewhere, when we ignore, when we overlook, when we try to replace, that breaks God's heart. The same way a spouse feels betrayed and broken because it looked like or it was obvious that their wife or husband tried to replace them with another or others. It's heartbreak. That's what God is trying to communicate. Heartbreak. He doesn't just come. Hosea doesn't just come to believe this. He doesn't even just preach this. He experiences it. He feels it. And again, this is why words fail us at times. We say that phrase all the time. Words fail me. Like I said before, this is one of those categories where it's just inexpressible. If you haven't experienced it, you won't know or understand it. So Hosea experiences this. He was expressing what theologians call laden action, this laden action. And so what does he do? He takes a vase and he smashes it on the ground and the people are looking at him and he says, this is the house of Israel. God will do the same. So he moves from, from expressing, this is the relationship God has with you. This is how you have run away from him. This is where you are. I get it. Trust me. I get why we typically avoid these kinds of books, because we don't like to think of God as a God that actually will bring judgment because of our ignoring him or because of our rebellion against him. We just want to think about God as loving and accepting and pursuing, which are all true things. But much like a relationship or a marriage, you can love a person and be heartbroken by that person. And you don't just overlook it. You're still hurt. And there are things that you require them to do in order to remain in relationship with you. So this is where God is. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that loves us. He's a God of love. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. And all of those things get put on display here. So here Hosea is, the prophet of the broken heart. And he's communicating the broken heart of God by things that go beyond words, taking the vase and smashing it. A little bit later today, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. And Jesus does another laden action when he gets up and looks at his disciples and says, this is my body. And then he takes bread and breaks it because words aren't enough. He's expressing the heartbreak, expressing the real emotional impact that this has. Hosea is called to experience what God feels. What Hosea go goes through is not done in private. It's publicly seen. Hosea's marriage is publicly seen. And so as we have looked in chapter two, we see the consequences of that. They get rebuked. God that goes to the very people who have, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go, I'm done with you. You know what? You did all of that. You can go and have that. You want those men? You want those other lovers? Go on and be with them. I'm good. I'll find another. God doesn't do that. That's where we would probably do. And, and we wouldn't necessarily be wrong in doing that, right? In our relationships. But God is like, 
You want to run that way? I'm going to call out your sin, call out the brokenness in our relationship, and then I'm going to pursue. How do we know that? Because again, go back to what we looked at here. After he uh, elucidates all of the ways that adultery is made manifest here, as he's rebuking this adultery, right? He's calling out, mother is promiscuous. The kids that you have, that's why some people aren't sure if these kids are actually uh, uh, Hosea's. That's another big question, right? Because they were conceived in promiscuity. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that while he married her and they were together, did she have kids with these other men and then he had to claim them as his? It's possible. Would not be outlandish. That's very possible. And as he's pointing all this stuff out, he gets to one point that I feel like just really should hit us right in the face. After he identifies all the ways that Gomer has run away with other people and embarrassed and shattered his hope and trust and all of that. Look at verse five. Therefore, this is what I will do. Because now he's talking about Israel, right? Gomer was just the picture. Here's what Israel has done. She's run away with other people, other lovers, other idols, other gods, other pursuits, right? Verse five, therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her path. She's going to pursue her lovers, but not catch them. Do you realize what this is saying here? Basically, what he's saying is uh, he he doesn't just say, going to have fun with that. I'm going to go do me. Going to have fun with that. I'm going to go find someone else. That's not a, again, wouldn't be a wrong thing. It's one of the reasons I believe that Jesus gives adultery as one of the reasons or grounds upon which somebody can get a divorce. Doesn't mean it's mandated, but if that happens, that break is so deep, that intimacy that has been broken is so deep that it can be very difficult for that to ever come back together. Jesus gives that for a reason, right? So it wouldn't be bad if Hosea, in this case, was like, I'm going the other way. God could have even done that, but God is different. He's not like us. God is different. And God does something quite different than we ever would do. Because whenever people drift away from God, much like the, the, the church of Ephesus in Revelation, right? You have, you have abandoned your first love. You have left your first love. Whenever we drift away from God, if we are his, you know what he does? He pursues us. He continues to long for us. While we are chasing after other lovers and we are chasing after other endeavors. And here's how he pursues us, though. He doesn't pursue like, keep pursuing and I hope that you look back and see me and notice me. And all of a sudden your emotions overtake you and you're like, what am I doing? I need to go back to my lover. No, what God does is something again that we would not do. He says, I'm going to make it so that the things you're chasing after you will never apprehend. I'm going to frustrate your efforts so that you will realize that what you're looking for, you will never find. It's not to say that Israel or Gomer in this case, it's not to say that she didn't find excitement. She references riches that she was able to have because of some of the new men that she was in her lives. The riches we might have because of the pursuits that we'll go after, right? New riches because of new lovers. But eventually, you're going to get this dreaded sense of unfulfillment. God is saying, I'm going to frustrate your pursuit of these things. You know what that means? That means God, again, this is not, we will feel like this is doing too much. God frustrates us back to himself. The very things that we run after, God is like, I'm going to frustrate your pursuits. Not because I'm trying to get revenge on you. Not because, because for us, that's how we might be. I really hope that that hurts you. I hope that you run after that. And I hope that next person that you're with, I hope they do the same thing to you that you did to me. Understandable. 
I hope that you get your just reward for what you did to me. And then, and this, our, our pride can go, and I hope that you get to the point where you come groveling back to me just so that I can tell you about yourself so that you realize you're never getting me again because you missed out on a good thing and all of that. But actually, God does something different. God says, I'm going to frustrate your efforts. I'm going to frustrate your pursuits so that you get to a place where you realize this is unfulfilling. I did not get what I thought I was going to get. And then the hope is that in that, that will lead us to a place of repentance to return. The hope is that that will take us to a place where real repentance happens. God will frustrate you into repentance. That's how he loves you. He doesn't just wait for you to get to a place where you finally realize, what have I done? That's really who I love. He frustrates your efforts so that you have no other choice, hopefully, no other choice than to repent. So he frustrates her efforts here. He frustrates Gomer's efforts here. And he frustrates Israel's efforts here to the point where you see her response. This is another real danger. Her response is what? You have two different ways to respond when you have betrayed the one that loves you. You can either respond with authentic repentance. It's probably more ways. But when we talk about repentance, authentic repentance and then counterfeit or defective repentance. Authentic repentance is what we see in the story of the prodigal son. Authentic repentance is realizing I want to restore my relationship with my father. I want to restore and I want to love him and I want to come with contrition and I want to build and rebuild and I want to be forgiven and I want to have true loving relationship with my father again. Or you can do what Gomer did and what Israel did. And that is defective repentance. Look at how Gomer responds. When he does all of this stuff, he does all of this. He says she doesn't recognize that it's I who gave her the grain, which is interesting, right? All these things she's doing, all these things she's using, all these relationships she's building. He's like, the wherewithal that she has to even enter into some of these relationships wouldn't be there had I not given it to her. But she's overlooked all of that, right? And she gets to this point where she finally says, I'm going to go back. She gets to this point where she says, I'm going to finally move back to uh, the one who loves me. But we start to see something that comes out. This defective repentance, this is her saying, I'm going to go back to my husband. Why? Because I was better off then than I am now. That's ultimately what she says. I'm going to go back because life was better when I was there. That's defective repentance. Because that's not rooted in, I'm going to go back because I want to restore the broken relationship that I caused. That's just, I don't like the consequences over here. Things would have been better over there. It's never true repentance when what drove you there is just bad consequences. That's never real true repentance. Real, Because ultimately that just means if there weren't any bad, any bad consequences there, you would have stayed there. But what real repentance looks like is I am not just moved by bad outcomes. I am moved by our broken relationship. And because my relationship with you is broken, I want to exhaust myself to rebuild this relationship. That is not her heart. That is not where she is. She just goes, you know, earlier she was thinking, I will follow my lovers. I will follow my lovers. And she realized that those lovers are ultimately unfulfilling. So she goes, well, I might as well go back because life was better over there than it was over here. That's defective repentance. That's how we function. 
Sometimes we'll be like, you know, I was following this, I was following this, I was following this. I've had this. I've had counseling sessions with some folks, some of you, where it's like, I did this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and I know I shouldn't be doing this. And then I hit rock bottom, and it brought me back to God. And you went back to God until things got good and prosperity set in, and then you got back into the same habits again. Those are those of us who, you know how you know when that happens? Because we begin to drift away. You don't just drift away from God, you drift away from God's people. So even within our community, the reason why we need to be in community is when we start to fade away, it's not just judgment, oh, I bet you're sinning. It's, yo, how are you doing? Because that isolation can often be a sign that I'm pursuing some other things. And why, the, the reason why we need to be in community is to make sure that we're held accountable, that we're like, hey, uh, if you see me drifting away, this is why it's not enough to just be like, hey, I've got, uh, I got a sermon I listen to online. Um, I can you know, listen when I want to. I can watch something when I want to. I don't really need church per se. We need community for that very reason, because when we begin to drift, who's going to be able to call out the drift? You're, not, you're never going to call out your own drift. Usually by the time you call out your own drift, you've drifted so far. So here, this is where she is. She is finally going, all right, well, you know what? I've been exposed and, and I, I'm dealing with all these things and my efforts have been so frustrated that I might as well go on back to where I was because life was better over there. Life was better that world. So let me just go on back. And this is the problem. This is who we are. This is what we do. We go back and forth. We go back and forth. We say, I want to love God. I want to love God until something shinier looks like that's going to be more fulfilling. So let me run over there. Then when it fails me, then I go, well, life was better over there. What God is saying is, I don't want just your good behavior. I want your heart. I don't want just great outcomes for you. I want genuine relationship with you. I want it because you're mine. I want it because I loved you. And here's the thing. I want this for you because while everything else, here he is running after Gomer. Let's just go back to Gomer for a minute. Gomer easily could have been like us, where she's like, you know, I've already done so much already. I might as well just keep going. I've already ruined my reputation so much. I might as well keep going. I got three kids that remind me of just how unloved I really am. So why would I ever do anything more? I, I'm unloved. I'm unlovable. This is probably the best I'm going to get. How many of us have ever felt that way? If I'm being honest with myself, I know who I am at my core and I know that there are things about me that just might make me unlovable or people have falsely told me these things about you make you unlovable. And so I might as well just keep pursuing the course of action that I'm in. This is what God is trying to say. God is saying, I have come to love the unlovable, the seemingly unlovable. Those who have a spiritual heart of a harlot I've come to make them my bride. I've come to make them my spouse. I've come to love them into loving me. You can't do that as a human being. I say this all the time to couples when they're dating. You cannot love somebody into loving you. Only God does that. That's why there's only one Hosea here. Don't use Hosea as a life aspiration or a goal to be like, let me go and try to love people. You can't rehabilitate a person. You can't rescue a person. You can't save a person. You will never be the Holy Spirit for another person. Only God does that. But it's because God does that, that we should be overwhelmed with his grace and his mercy. Because we're like, man, I, I know my heart drifts. I know that I go back and forth. I know that I pursue other things. God knew that beforehand, the same way Hosea knew that beforehand. And he still said, you are mine. 
I am yours and I am pursuing you and I'm calling you back. When you drift, I'm calling you back. Your idols, I'm trying to frustrate your idols so that you come back to the only God that can fulfill. Pastor Jen and I were talking recently and she brought up something really true. If one thing got exposed in 2020, it was our idols. So many areas of our, of our heart's pursuits and our heart's desires were exposed in 2020. Because there were some things that we could no longer do and now you're left with just what is before you and you start longing for certain things that maybe you longed for too much or relied on too much. And just being alone with God isn't quite enough. I know that it, it, there are times when it's like being alone and being left with what God has for me right now, that's just not enough. I need to still be able to pursue X, Y, and Z where I feel unfulfilled. And so I have this gaping hole that's there. What do I do with a gaping hole? I feel it. I feel it with something. You know, there's maybe a time like, Lord, fill this hole that I'm filling with more of you. And that's super, I know it's super ethereal and it almost feels like it's so broad, but let's get more specific. God, fill me with more of how I need to be seeing myself. What areas in me that actually need to be reworked and broken and remade? Lord, show me my selfishness. Show me the ways in which I'm inclined. I'm so selfish that I'm inclined to fill these gaps with things that I just think are good for me and not what's good for you or good for your people. Or maybe this is the time where we stop and go, God, I'm looking at all the ways that maybe I've convinced myself that I'm unlovable. And because I feel unlovable, I feel unworthy of God's love. So I don't, uh, it's, it's difficult for me sometimes to trust that I will be loved because I feel so unworthy. And here's the last thing to understand. This is not about finding a way to, to, to conjure up reasons for worthiness in you. This is not about figuring out how do I convince myself I'm worthy? How do I convince myself that I am loved by God? How do I convince myself? That's not it at all. Because ultimately, again, if we're honest, there are, if we based worthiness on whether or not we are always faithfully pursuing, then sure, it's hard to say any of us are worthy, right? But here's what's, here's what's so desperately important. And this is something that I struggle with. I'm sure you struggle with as well. Your worthiness is not defined by your ability to hold the line. Your worthiness is defined by God's declaration over you. God declares his love for you. God declares you are worthy. You did not earn the worthiness. I did not earn the worthiness. I did not perform my way into worthiness. I did not resume myself into worthiness. My worthiness is not a function of anything I've demonstrated. It is solely based on what God has declared and what God has demonstrated. He loves you. And because he loves you, you are worthy. He didn't wait for you to get worthy for him to love you. That's what we do in relationships. And that's not bad. In most relationships, you demonstrate that you are worth the love that I'm going to invest. With God, very different. God doesn't wait for evidence of worthiness to love us. He loves us into our worthiness. This consistent, persistent love. Persistent, pursuing grace. 
We sing hymns like Jesus, lover of my soul. How much do we really know about that kind of love in our own soul? We began this worship, uh, the worship service with a song sung by Kayla that, uh, called So Will I. And you think about the words that, that, are, that are said there. There's one set of words there that just gets me over and over again. When we say, but what measure could amount to your desire? What measure? What could I do that would make you desire a relationship with me? Yet you're the one who never leaves the one behind. You don't, you don't leave us. He didn't leave Gomer, this picture. He didn't leave Israel. He loved us enough to call us out to show you're pursuing everything else but me. And so it's going to be uncomfortable, but my love is going to be, I'm going to frustrate you back into genuine re reconciliation and relationship with me. This is the love of our God. He loves the unlovable. He frustrates and then loves us into loving him. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we sit and, and, and rest in this truth, God, I pray that you would, I pray that you would undo some things in us here in 2021 as we begin a new year, as we begin a new decade. Father, I pray that you would, that you would show us areas in our own hearts where we are uh, desperately pursuing and seeking um, other things, even good things, to fulfill something that only you can fulfill. God, I pray that you would show us where our idols are. I pray that you would show us where we are the gomer in the story. Father, we aren't the hero here. And God, I pray that as we see the areas where we are gomer, I pray that that would not lead to debilitating shame and uh, debilitating guilt. But God, I pray that it would lead to a heart of repentance, authentic repentance. Father, I pray that we would not engage in counterfeit repentance. I pray that our repentance would not be rooted in a desire for better outcomes, but a desire for a deeper, long-lasting pursuit of you, relationship with you. God, thank you for the kind of grace that doesn't base, that is not based on our worthiness. Thank you for loving us into being worthy, loving us into being yours. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are now at a time where we can uh, celebrate this love and we celebrate this truth, this idea that our love of God, the God that loves us, precedes our worthiness, if you will. We didn't, uh, this wasn't a merit-based relationship. Again, other relationships are. Every other relationship for the most part, especially romantic relationships and friendships, those are meritorious. Those are things that are based on merit. But this is a relationship where God's love precedes our worthiness. God's love facilitates our worthiness. And so in this same kind of laden action that Jesus demonstrated, we're going to demonstrate now this idea that there's a love that God has for you in which he says, I love you so much that I'm giving myself for you. That I'm, yes, there are things that are needing to be changed in you. And so I've given my life and I've given you my spirit so that you can be changed. Why? Because I want you to be remade into my image and into my bride. 
because I love you. I'm going to frustrate your efforts to run away from me. And I'm going to draw you back to me because I love you. And so this very picture, this late in action, much like when Hosea broke the vase to show Israel what that means. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, looked at his disciples. He took the bread, he picked it up and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same way, he took the cup. He held this up for them to see and he said, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. Take, drink of it and do this as often as you remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. What Paul tells us is that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. What are we really proclaiming here? We are proclaiming the most unlikely love story ever told. We're proclaiming something that in earthly terms would be foolish. God loves with a foolish love according to human standards. It's a foolhardy effort to try to love somebody into loving you unless you're God. This is who loves us. This is how he loves us. And he is constantly calling us into relationship with him and reminding us. So we do this to remind ourselves two things. Remind ourselves that there are ways in which I can see that I've, been, that I've run away from him. And so we sit in that and we repent. We come to a heart of repentance. And then we also go, and I'm overwhelmed that he would still love me and call me his bride. I'm overwhelmed that in Revelation, I still get to stand and say, I am his and he is mine. Let's receive the benediction of God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people, the very bride of Christ said, amen. Happy New Year, and God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.